Well, uh, I want to, we'll probably have some more people coming in, but I want to, uh, to welcome Daphne Benoit, who is our, uh, our guest today. Daphne is one of the real, you know, uh, stars of Agence Press and has had much experience uh, covering uh, news in various places, born in Paris, as I understand it, is yes. that correct? Yes, yes. Which means that she has uh, sort of a, a, a genetic savoir-faire and understanding <laughs> of the world uh, from the French perspective. And one of the things that was interesting about having Daphne, one of the reasons we were eager to have her, was so that she could address not only the issue, she's covering the Pentagon now, she's been embedded mm -hmm with uh, American soldiers. Uh, she's covering the Pentagon here, of course, in, uh, in Washington. But, you know, just like the Associated Press, uh, a, a news agency has a sort of perspective that is both a national perspective and an international one, one that reflects the, the sort of worldview of the nation upon which it's grounded in its journalistic traditions. And, of course, with Agence Press, it provides news all over the world to all kinds of, uh, of, of, of people. How does that square in a digital world in which these things are now completely fluid and, and are, are moving very rapidly and where the expectations are that you're going to be able to get everything? How does that affect the way Agence Press, the way uh, Daphne Benoit uh, reports the news for Agence Press? We're very glad to have you here, and um, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation and the uh, opportunity to talk to you. Um, so um, as uh, Mr. Jones uh, uh, said, um, I cover the Pentagon. I'm part of the Pentagon Press Corps um, uh, as a wire for the Agence France Presse. Um, let me, uh, so the, the theme of the day, and uh, I'll, I'll be glad to uh, uh, talk about any other theme later on, is the media and the military. Um, let me just briefly uh, start with um, a brief overview of how I function as a wire to cover military news. Um, so I have to uh, cover the most important news about U.S. defense policy and strategy. Uh, so it goes from missile defense to um, U.S. troops being sent to Haiti, I was there as well, um, to veterans' health issues. Um, but obviously m the most important subject right now is Afghanistan. So. What I do um, when I get a, uh, um, news is that I give the facts, um, usually sourcing the Pentagon or senior defense officials or military officials, um, and then I enrich my copy with reactions from experts, politicians, foreign governments, and background in order to put in perspective and, and, um, and offer as much analysis as possible. Um, so basically the, the, the target is to give a full spectrum of opinions to give the customer, which is in the wire's case, um, the media's. But the beginning is a Pentagon release. Um, it can be a Pentagon release, can be a Pentagon briefing, it can be an interview uh, with a military official, it can be a congressional hearing where um, you know a senior official is going to say something important, um, and it can be um, you know um, sources that I get and um, where I can can't disclose the, the names, but. You know, it's it's a various uh, various possibilities, and so yeah, basically uh, the, the idea is to um, give the customers for the wire. It's mainly the media's themselves the keys to understand what's at stake and what what it implies. So in this regard, covering the military is very similar to covering any other public institutions like the State Department or the White House, 
except for the very specific military culture and in a very special time for the US nation is at war on two fronts. And uh, that, um, to me, requires extra vigilance because the risk of manipulation, call it spin or propaganda, is extremely high given the ongoing wars. Um, so basically, media and military, I would say it's a very, very complex relationship, especially at times of war, obviously. Because we need each other, yet we have conflicting interests and somehow different values. Let me explain what I want to say. Um, in the media sphere, we value transparency, we value facts that can be verified, and usually we need the information quick, especially at this digital age where you know, everything goes so fast. On the other hand, the military, um, basically the, the military's core business is to deal with classified information, classified operations that sometimes simply can't be verified at all. Like any UAV strike in Pakistan, there is absolutely no way for us to check that out. Um, and I would say, moreover, the military uh, sculpture is to value order, discipline, there's a respect for the chain of command. That kind of thing is not exactly the media's forte. Um, so basically, to sum up um, the stereotypes that feed the mistrust between those two spheres. On the one hand, journalists are suspected of breaching security, or be at a risk of breaching, breaching security, um, by revealing classified information that could put lives at risk, or feeding the enemy with you know, um, classified information, and also undermining public support um, by pointing out wrongdoings, problems, issues of strategy, um, collateral damages like you know killing of um, innocent civilians, etc. To sum it up, basically to focus on negative news, which the military obviously resents as being ungrateful because they put their life at risk to defend the, the, their country. Um, obviously, the most classic example of that is the coverage of Vietnam, which led to the shift of public opinion, and the military remembers that very deeply. And on the other hand, I would say to to sum up. Um, the biggest stereotype about the military, it's that it's suspected of hiding the truth or manipulating the information to uh, push their own interests. It's pretty obvious. Um, but obviously, um, I must say, after three years at the Pentagon, I must say that the reality is more, more nuanced. Um, frankly, efforts are made on both parts to gain each other's trust because we need each other for many re different reasons. To sum it up, I would say that for the media, Obviously, access to military information is crucial. We need that information to be able to report on it. And also, it's a question of um, having access to a rugged and dangerous terrains like Afghanistan and Iraq. We need the military to get there and to report on what's going on there. Um, and I think, uh, uh, and so as for the military, obviously, they need the media as a pub, you know, as public support is so critical. And as information is literally fully part of warfare, um, but so e examples of you know um, efforts on the media side, for example, when we are sent on embeds, which means that we spend time completely merged in the military with them, sharing their daily lives and going on operations with them, um, we accept to um, sign um, you know certain rules to agree to certain rules, you know that um, that are the condition for us to stay with them. And so it's, it's, it limits what we can do or, or what we can't 
but it's part of you know the deal, the trade-off, and you know I, I'm, I I was glad to do that back in October when I was in Afghanistan. And on the military side, I must say there's a real effort to communicate and offer access in order to get people to better understand what they're doing, why, and um, you know I keep on meeting very helpful public affairs officers, um, very helpful commanders who understand that if they just keep on spinning information, there's not going to be trust and the dialogue is not going to be possible. So I meet great people at the, at the Pentagon and, and um, all over the, the, the world, basically. And also I would say, um, and that's where there's a main difference with other countries, particularly France, for example, is that the Pentagon is probably the most open <coughs> military building in the world. Once you get your accreditation as a press person, you can literally walk around the building and knock on doors and meet with people and get different opinions and so on and, and talk informally with you know um, high-ranking officers. I mean, literally in France, that would never happen. You would never be able to walk around the Ministry of Defense as a journalist. I mean, this is behind closed doors, absolutely. So that, that's interesting. And for example, um, I have an office inside the Pentagon, like um, most of my colleagues do, like the, wi the main wires, um, um, the main uh, TV channels, and radio, and so on. We're prob probably like 20, permanently based in the Pentagon. So uh, that's, that's interesting. And also, um, the Pentagon Press Corps gets to regularly travel with the Secretary of Defense. Um, and we are offered embeds in Iraq or Afghanistan. So I mean, there's, there's an effort to, to open up. However, I would say um, one needs to always remember and be aware of the fact that the media strategy is fully and is, is, is as carefully planned as the military strategy itself. And literally, as it's always been the case, but with huge means and a huge budget, communication is one of the military's weapons, literally. And the latest example <coughs> of that is the, the way they dealt with the Marja Offensive. Um, to, publish, uh, to widely publicize it before it even happened. And um, you know, really talk to the press about it and what they were gonna do and so on. So um, uh, General McChrystal last uh, month, I had the chance to, uh, to, to, to see him while I was traveling with uh, the secretary um, to a NATO meeting, uh, was telling us that the, the, me, the, 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 the aim was to warn the civilians and, you know, so that they can get away from the place where the fight would take place, and also to, uh, to warn the enemy. And so, but the, the thing is, in this case, um, the media, by reporting all these details, are actively participating in the war. They are becoming a vector for the military message. We are part of this war. So it's, I mean, it's not a pr problem per se, because it's valuable information for us, for the public, but yet, we have to realize that, always. Um, also, in allowing us to get closer via embeds, via having us inside the Pentagon, uh, the military has more chance, obviously, to control the message delivered. Let's say we have daily briefings. We have, for example, every morning, we have a gaggle, what we call a gaggle, um, with a, a Pentagon spokesman. And we, we go through a wide range of issues. Um, and we, um, we have regular briefing inside the Pentagon briefing room uh, via teleconference from commanders on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. 
So that is good for us because it feeds the media beast. We need information all the time. But frankly, it allows the military to control the agenda and to spoon feed us with whatever they want. And um, th so in this case, the challenge is always to, to, uh, to make sure to, uh, to be able to discern information from disinformation or just simply diversion. Because you know, sometimes these briefings are just useless, frankly because the commanders don't feel like they have the right to really you know, say as much as a general could say, and you know, often it ends up being, okay, we're confident we're gonna succeed. And you're like, well, that was a waste of my time. I could have digged deeper into another story. So that's, uh, that's interesting. As for effort on transparency, I would say that the Obama administration has made progress, at least they declared they wanted to make progress, but there is still deep resistance on the field in the military. Let me give you an example. Um, I, I'm sure that you are aware that um, the Obama uh, administration decided to lift the ban um, to cover the arrival of caskets um, from the war zones, which was you know, forbidden until then for obvious reasons. I mean, officially it was not to bother the families, I understand that, but obviously it was because it was giving a wrong signal to the American public. Um, now it's possible, with the consent of the families, to do so. However, when I was embedding in Afghanistan, in Kandahar, um, there was um, one day where the striker brigade with whom I was embedding uh, lost three of his, whip, uh, of his men, and I asked to attend what they call the ramp ceremony, where they put the caskets um, into a plane back to the uni United States with all the units lined up. It's a very um, intense moment. It's a, and I wanted to see that. And uh, the commander categorically said, no, there's no way you can access that. I don't want you to report on this. Uh, no photo allowed. Um, leave us alone, basically. And it's only because a captain of this unit overheard the conversation, and he came over to pick me up two, day, two uh, hours later in my tent and tell me, come with me. I want you to see this. For the, you know, out of respect for the fallen soldiers, I want the people to know what's going on here, and it should be, a, you know, you should be entitled to, to attend this ceremony. So thanks to him, I could sneak in, and you know, I I put a few lines inside the body of a story. Didn't want to make it too obvious, but nobody said a word, so I don't know if they read it. <laughs> um, and um, finally, I would say. If an information doesn't fit the global message, there are actual tentatives of intimidation or censorships. I'm not saying it happens often. It happened to me just a few times. But um, just to let you know that when you touch something sensitive, you might have trouble. Um, that was, again, when I was embedding uh, in October, I happened to interview the commander of the whole southern region of Afghanistan. Um, you know, with um, Kandahar province and Helmand province. And he told me genuinely that he needed 15,000 more, uh, 15, more troops to do his job properly. The problem is, at the time, uh, the President Obama hadn't decided yet whether to send more troops. And it was a big fuss, a, a big buzz ar around that uh, back in Washington. And also, NATO count in, in NATO countries, public support um, had started to fade. 
So it was a very bad time to publicly announce <coughs> I want more troops. So it was basically an PC. And his public affairs officer later, once my story hit the wire in many different languages, um, gave me a call back and said, you distorted the reality. He never said that. You misunderstood. You know, and, and I was, I didn't understand because I had the interview on tape and I made it listen to my colleagues and there was absolutely no doubt he had said so. And by the way, I never heard from the general himself. I only heard about from his PAO. And what happened is he never asked me for an official correction, but he called my colleagues <coughs> from different medias and told them that I had distorted reality and sold them another story that was contradicting the one that I had written. Anyway, um, that can be conflictual. <laughs> so as a conclusion, let's be honest. Sometimes the press does a great job at revealing um, um, things that, are, you know, that the public should know and plays its role of watchdog. The typical example is you know, Washington Post breaking a story on Walter Reed um, you know, and the poor treatment given to veterans. And it actually changed things positively. But often, frankly, the information we are giving are given to us in the first place with an ulterior motive. So there are fundamental rules, I think, to keep in mind for journalists covering this minefield, um, you know, in order to be as fair, balanced, and credible as possible. First of all, I would say we have to go see back for ourselves on the field. Frankly, um, that gives us credibility towards the military, towards the public opinion, you went there, you know, you probably know what you're talking about. And also, as I've literally never learned as much about the military and counter insurgency uh, strategy as when I was there with the soldiers, um, living with them. Um, also, always put in context, avoid manichaeism, because for the military, frankly, there's the bad and the good guys. And it's a little more complicated than that. For example, when you describe the Taliban, make sure that you know that, 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 you, that, that you present them as a multifaceted reality. You have the hardcore ideologues you know, that are linked to terrorism, but you also have the farmer who doesn't have a choice but take those $10 a day he's given to feed his family. And you also have the guy who's fighting against foreign occupation of his soil. Um, so that's important. And also, remember the past. Confront the military leaders with what they said or did before, months ago, years ago. Example, very briefly, um, the training the Afghan soldiers. It's all presented as if it was a brand new part of the strategy since um, General McChrystal arrived. No, it's not. It was already you know, implemented beforehand. General McKiernan kept on saying we need to train Afghan soldiers, and we are doing that. So the real question is to the military, what is that is going to be different in the way you're doing things? Uh, but don't, don't tell us that you know, it's, that's one of the brand new key you know, solutions, because it's not new. So what is going to be made differently so that it works? And um, my last point would be, always try to take into account different points of views from abroad. Um, example, um, the Secretary of Defense, I've had uh, multiple opportunities to uh, follow his um, visits to uh, countries whenever there's a NATO um, defense meeting, 
So I've, I've covered a lot of them. And every time for the past three years, the message from the United States is, you should step up to the plate, give more troops to help us fight the Taliban, you know, do more. But what you have to keep in mind is that NATO countries have actually doubled their presence in Afghanistan in the past two years. Of course, not in the proportions of what's been done by the US, but let's think that we don't have in Europe the military means that the US has. So it has to be put in perspective, but maybe that's just the European in me talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, yeah, and um, I would be glad to. Uh, Daphne, thank you. I, let, me, let me begin the, the questioning. Um, first of all, who do you consider your audience when you do stories? So, um, as a wire service, it's complicated because I write in French, but I work with um, a colleague of mine from the AFP who's an American and is also a Pentagon correspondent. So we do that in both languages, but we translate each other's stories. And um, so my, my stories get translated basically in, well, 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 total we have six languages. Um, so we have English, German, Spanish, Chinese, Arabic, and so on. So and my audience is pretty large potentially, I would say. Um, our main customer base is literally the medias themselves. It's like what represents the, the, the most of our customers are medias, whether it's TVs, like CNN, for example, receives the AFP, uh, whether it's um, you know international press. Uh, sometimes I get clips from our headquarters in Paris. They, 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 um, they find our different bureaus all over the world, find that my article, for example, with my byline on it in a different language, um, was in the Bangkok Post or in the, you know, uh, a Southern African magazine, or it can be, you know, various countries all over the world. Well, <clears throat> how do you sort of locate um, Agence France in the sort of culture of journalism of France? Because journalism in France is a very different kind of journalism than we have in this country. My impression is that Agence France is a sort of French creature. But at the same time, it is more like an American-style uh, AP Reuters oh, yeah. kind of fact-based, objective journalism. I mean, does 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 Agence <coughs> think of itself as being somewhere on the political spectrum, for instance? Absolutely not. Okay. We are absolutely um, we are required to be as neutral and objective as possible. This is big concepts, obviously, and anytime the journalist um, is writing something, it goes through his mind anyway, so you know, objectivity is a very complicated concept, but we are supposed to do that. We are not supposed to take sides, we're not writing opinion, um, you know, columns, editorials, we are purely in the facts, but we're not only writing little dispatches, um, very factual dispatches, we're also providing with analysis, features, you know, very various reports, but it's true that we are on the same side as AP or Reuters. And is Agence France supported by the French government? Um, okay, it's a very complicated um, status we have. Um, we are not a public agency, per se, because we, uh, in our status we don't have a capital. We don't have any. It's weird. <laughs> um, but what I would say is the French government represents 30% of our subscribers. 
revenues. Because um, the French government, all the embassies all over the world, all the institutions, ministers, everything, they, they receive the AFP and they pay for it. So you could see it as a public support, but they're actually customers, which represent a, a B, a like one third of our revenues. The rest is the media's all over the world. And then the final question that I want, and then I will open it up, is to ask you to compare the experience of reporting in France, which you have done, and reporting outside France. Not necessarily just the United States, but outside France. Is that, is that a distinction that's meaningful in the sense of uh, the way Agence France does its job? Well, I would say two things. When you report from France, it's probably like AP reporting from the United States. You get more access. People will talk to you more, obviously. They trust you, they know you, they know who you are. So you get more access. You get people to call you and give you information. I have a harder time here or in Germany, for example, to get that. So I will obviously have less access than AP, but also the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, who are very well established, have contacts. I have contacts too, but frankly, my job here is less of, um, you know, giving scoops than trying to um, analyze um, as best as possible what I capture from the country I'm in as a foreign correspondent and, 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 and you know, try to explain that to a foreign audience. And is there, a, is there a tolerance in France for stories that embarrass one way or the other the French government? I mean, in this country, um, you know, there's an awful lot of that. And uh, I mean, Deborah Amos is here from uh, National Public Radio. Um, that is, you know, the government is a source of about, is 30% roughly, would you say, or? Uh, yeah, not to us, but to the local stations, not to the network. Um, but NPR is aggressive when it's in, in, in its coverage of the government. How does the, you were describing the French foreign minister or the defense ministry and how it would be impossible to imagine you'd be able to wander around. Is there a, a cultural difference there, do you think, in terms of what the government will tolerate from a journalism organization that it actually supports? Frankly, I think I'm much more free here covering the U.S. military than I would be if I were covering the French military mm. in France. There's no question about it. I would feel free to write whatever I, you know, I feel like I, writing. However, I would probably um, be well think about it twice in the in the way I put things mm -hmm. together because there would be a risk of losing sources more than what I'm doing here because I'm not under so much scrutiny. I mean, obviously, the Pentagon is reading my stories. But for them, we are not, frankly, a massive vector of um, public opinion uh, shaping. Like, AFP is not very strong in the US. We are very strong in Europe, very strong in Asia, but not in the US. So the, the scrutiny towards us mm -hmm. is way less than what it is in France. And um, I think uh, there's no censorship whatsoever, but in the way you would present things, I don't know. Maybe that would be more complicated. Yeah, Deborah? Um, the story that you tell about when you're not PC and they come after you, 
uh, is interesting, and I wondered if you could expand a little bit on something I noticed in the way that you told the story, which is uh, he calls you up, you know, he says you're distorting the truth, but then he calls your colleagues and he convinces them, as you tell it, to do another story. So, do they try to pick you off individually and and you know, like like somehow shun you by giving things to other journalists? Or do your colleagues stick together? I mean, did they then take what you wrote and amplify it more? I mean, how does that, how's that dynamic with all of you, you know, when one of you gets picked out to be, you know, the bad guy? How does it work with the rest of your colleagues? Frankly, um, within the Penguin Press Corps, there would be a solidarity if that happened, you know, with somebody that we, we, we talk to, you know, every day or, there would be a solidarity, and I'm sure that it would get amplified, and everybody would actually, you know, go and pick more on it. Where it was a little <coughs> different is that um, it happened in Afghanistan, and what this uh, PAO did was to call um, something called br uh, breaking news, I think. Um, yeah. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a guy that's very um, that has a blog. It's, he's very like he has one million followers on Twitter or something. It's ridiculous. I mean, I don't exactly know. Paris gave me a call saying, you know, they had noticed that this guy was saying, you know, AFP's reporting this, PAO says it's wrong, and then you know, on the internet suddenly, like this guy had a full article saying, I mean, completely like, pure spin. I mean, it was ridiculous. And what I did was I alerted m my colleagues from the Pentagon back in Washington and said, look, if you, if you see you know, that article on the internet, believe me, I have the tape, and I can easily give you the verbatim if you're interested. And some of them asked me to you know, send them the whole, like, all the quotes I had and everything. And where I'm happy is that I actually ended up winning because my story was in the early bird uh, of the Pentagon the morning after. So the guy, you know, tentative operation to you know discredit me didn't work, but it was very scary because in the conversation he kept on pushing me, saying you distorted the reality, and I was like, but why don't you ask me for an official correction then? You know, pass me on the general, and I will you know again address that issue and make sure that I. But I don't understand what what you want, and he wouldn't tell me what he wanted, and he was just turning around. And you could tell it was just an embarrassment, you know, that he didn't want that story to be out at that moment. So I, it ended up, you know, go, doing going well for me because that's not the story of that guy. I can tell Michael you that Young? I was sorry, Michael Young. I don't know. I don't remember. I was so angry. <laughs> I erased his name from my memory. But I think, frankly, I almost sent him an email. I was outraged that the, the, this journalist didn't even call me to double check with me and put my, you know, my reputation at, you know, like this, uh, trashed me without even knowing what was happening. It was weird. I'm sure this will come as no surprise to you, but I was a PAO during the Vietnam War in the Navy. And I can tell you that a PE, PAO's life is not a happy one. <laughs> Especially when the general does something stupid and then you are supposed to do something about it. And I'm sure that this guy, he sounds like an idiot to me because he was trying to you know, do something that was false. But I mean, during the Vietnam War, I was on ships in the Coral Sea, or the ship was the Coral Sea in the Gulf of Tonkin, and I would read 
Um, we published a newspaper on board the ship, and I would read stories about how the United States was not bombing in Cambodia and Laos, and I had had breakfast that morning with the pilots who were bombing Laos and Cambodia. And I knew, simply knew, that our government was lying about these kinds of things. It's a very, it's an excruciatingly awful situation to find yourself in. And uh, it, it is, uh, I, I sympathize with you, I know you were on the right side of this, but I think about that poor bastard, and I'm sure that he was having his balls squeezed by, uh, by the general. No, actually, that, what's interesting is that I actually asked him, did the general call you back to, and he said no. You think he was telling the truth? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, I keep and the general said, hey, keep me out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John. Um, first of all, just a, one word. I was recently in Southeast Asia and uh, reading the uh, Cambodian Daily in English, and there were a number of articles um, on uh, what was going on in Phnom Penh. And I remember clearly one AFP article describing how the present uh, leader of uh, Cambodia, who was the same general that came uh, from Vietnam 30 years ago and throughout ostensibly Pol Pot, uh, the article neatly pointed out how uh, this uh, Cambodian general who'd come from Vietnam had just appointed one of Pol Pot's bodyguards as a general in the army. And, you know, only the French could Maybe. have written that. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> Of course, as you know, it's a crazy topsy uh, world over there. I wanted to ask you, though, separately, anyway, th th so that was good stuff you were doing over there because certainly the Times uh, didn't have it. Um, do you know about things like our drones and what they do before they come out, before it comes out? Have you known, I mean, I guess it was mostly where we've gotten the, the most trouble has been in Pakistan. Did you all know? And, and find out what's happening before um, it was publicly made available. I mean, that was, I think that's one of the, the, the big, one of the biggest uh, issues. Um, uh, you mean like the, 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 that the uh, military and the CIA started to uh, right, use right. that kind and, of and, and and when they were doing it because they they apparently did a number of them in Pakistan. And uh, did okay. you guys know that? Frankly, is one of the of my main concerns covering the military and, and sometimes the intelligence community. This is a story I can never get confirmed, ever. And all we have, frankly, is through ma the major newspaper, US newspapers, nobody else has the story, and it's obviously very organized leaks, and, but that's absolutely uncheckable. This is uncheckable, especially at the Pakistani border, the terrain is ridiculously rugged. It's mountainous. Journalists don't have access in those zones. The Pakistani military is completely, you know, is, is not saying anything about it. And the only thing, the only first um, uh, time I realized it was actually probably really happening is when we visited um, Coast back in December 2007 with the Secretary of Defense. And I saw predators and you know UAVs on the airfield. I saw them, and we were right at the border. So it was, for me, the first real proof that it was existing. But frankly, this is one of the, the problems we have with this war. We don't know about this. There's no way. 
I mean, the, the only thing we could get would be the video feed from those um, drones when they're in, in action. And that's sometimes leaked to the press. And sometimes you see, you know, but frankly, that's, that's, that's very annoying. We, we, can't, we can't possibly double check that at all. Peter Press. Um, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on kind of the online military space in the sense of, you know, there are a lot of soldiers' blogs. There are, you know, blogs written by journalists, Tom Ricks, whatever, Abu Mukwama. Um, and, you know, soldiers are allowed to Facebook and do all kinds of things. I know you had that bad Twitter experience. Um, <coughs> how useful, reliable, et cetera, and, and where do you go? What, what things do you find most interesting in kind of the online space? And then also, how, to the extent that one can separate kind of, you know, military online from political online world, how does kind of the information that one gets about military affairs compare online to what one gets about political affairs online? Well, um, I would say, okay, on vlogs, uh, the vlogosphere on the, the U.S. military is prolific. There's mm -hmm. tons of vloggers, and, um, and, and what most interesting for me is when experts, analysts, are blogging or putting their expertise online mm -hmm. because they do it pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And when you know I can't reach them on the phone or something like that, I really, I mean, I use their quotes, mm -hmm. you know, from mm -hmm. that. So that's that's ha that has become a full source mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. As for um, colleagues who have their blogs. Um, for example, I'm thinking about Danger, um, Danger Room by Wired. Right. Uh, that's a pretty good one, very, very good one, uh, with interesting angles that I wouldn't have thought of, because I'm all, so, uh, I'm, 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 you know, very much uh, stuck with, you know, trying to cover so so many different stories from like the institutional side mm -hmm. that you know they have very good interesting stories on technology on mm -hmm. DARPA mm -hmm. on what's going on mm -hmm. so that for me is very enriching mm -hmm. um, as for the the use by the military of those social media networks mm -hmm. um, or blogs okay that starts to be complicated because um, I would say okay for example uh, Chairman Mullen is now tweeting mm -hmm. And sometimes it's uh, convenient, it's uh, interesting. I mean, you know, it alerts you on something or you can, you can use it. it um, it's interesting. The, the, the problem is um, that um, the military is actually, um, tends to multiply the number of Facebook pages almost every, like, brigade has its own Facebook page now. Um, ISAF has its uh, Facebook page, the U.S. forces in Afghanistan has a Facebook page. First of all, sometimes they even post their press release on their Facebook page before they notify us. That, I think, is not fair. <laughs> because frankly, I can't spend my life on Facebook. Um, and second of all, what's a little concerning to me is that this multiplication of military blogs, but official ones, mm -hmm. not talking about the soldiers talking, because that is rare. Mm -hmm. They don't have quite the right to do that. Mm -hmm. But the military, Facebook pages, Twitter, stuff like that, the problem is it's a short, I mean, it, it, it cuts the press, it cuts mm -hmm. the media, media meaning we're in the middle mm -hmm. between the public opinion and the military. When they do that, they address the public directly, mm -hmm. and that, to me, is kind of dangerous 
but of course because it, 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 it puts my profession in danger. But what I mean is that there's no more filter between the mainstream message and the public. And I think that it, it, it poses some problems, frankly, because it's, it's a direct way to push the propaganda, or at least spin, without having to deal with the media. A couple, a couple of years ago, we had a guy from the Pentagon <coughs> who talked very frankly about dominating the communications battlefield. Of course. In the same, the same way, and the idea of, of exactly that, going unfiltered to people and framing it to look as much like news from Agence Press or any other place as they possibly can and basically saying this is the news and we're the news organization and you can believe what we say. There's, but there's a, there's a part of me that kind of doesn't really care that much about it because, um, you know, if the press just looks on itself as the filter for the press releases or whatever, then that seems kind of a narrow definition of what we should or what we have or will be doing. So it's like, in a sense, it, when the military goes out directly and releases the press release, it's fine. That frees you up in some ways to maybe do investigations to not have to attend the press conferences or rewrite the press releases, which is what a lot of wire reporters have done for for, for decades. Um, you know, so I think there are two. There, uh, you, you know, I'm I'm a writer. I'm, I write the New York Times magazine. I'm a Shornstein fellow here and all that. Um, but I, I don't. I don't. Somehow I'm not as disturbed by them going directly to to, to people because you know we're still there and and we can still do a lot of things that maybe no longer are going to be involved in going to the press conferences and, and dealing with these press releases. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I must say I'm kind of stuck with that duty because, mm -hmm. frankly, um, the only people that are left in the room when something, you know, I mean, when, when other people don't want to go, it's the wires. <laughs> we have to be there uh. for the exact same reason. The colleagues from the New York Times, they have a better story to report on, mm -hmm. so they can count on us to make sure they didn't miss anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm I'm kind of stuck with my duty on on this one. But I understand as a uh, written press um, reporter, I understand that you know, as much you know freedom you can mm -hmm. get, you know, to to avoid that kind of institutional mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. you can get it's it's better for you. Um, but as for me, I don't know. Um, I think. Uh, a press release um, that's going to be, uh, you know, put in the ends of a um, wire service and then put back on the wire, but with all the necessary background, with, cho you know, choosing the angle by which you, you attack the problem and everything, it's added value, frankly. I think that if you do your job well as a wire, you can really add value to just press releases that are just mm -hmm. posted like that. And also it goes a little further because if, if you see the way the Pentagon is presenting its news on, on its website mm -hmm. or ISAF, mm -hmm. they really like, they, they, it's, it's ready to go products. Like it's videos, it's um, stories with like appealing titles, but it's always good news mm -hmm. from Afghanistan. I'm sorry, <laughs> but frankly. Yeah. Uh, the consumers are pretty savvy these days. I mean, you know, particularly younger consumers of news are pretty savvy about, okay, this is a press release from the military, okay, therefore you know, I'm, I'm, it's less credible than something that comes from other sources. I, I don't I think you're so. right about I don't that, know. Yeah, I, necessarily. I, I, so. I, mean, I mean, video news releases are calculated <laughs> to be able to be dropped into, you know, uh, 
YouTube shows mm -hmm. uh, and look exactly like Agence France, France did it as opposed to the military did it because of the credibility that Agence France brings to what it's mm -hmm. doing. I mean, I mean, Abe Rosenthal at the New York Times once was in my presence sort of bearded about, you know, why do you, you know, let all these PR people use you that way? Why do you, you know, why do you let them use you? And he held up his arms like this and he said, use me, use me. <laughs> I mean, but the point I think that was then that, that journalists often don't do the job they're supposed to do. As you say, they just simply take it and put it in. True. But, in but that's, that's a different problem from a calculated effort to effectively make what you do look like it was put through that that's that vetting when it was not. Yeah, you had, had uh, looking at it from the audience's view, the consumer and the issue of trust, would you compare working with the US government and the French military ministry? Which one does the journalist get trusted? in reporting. Hmm. Uh, which you mean? What well, one case he's, the journalist is excluded. Oh. In the other case it's embedded. Yeah. And the audience looks at this and says, oh, I can trust the one that's not embedded. <coughs> I understand. The one that's embedded, ah, question mark. True. Um, except, actually, when I was talking about uh, the question of access for the uh, French Ministry of <coughs> Defense, I was talking about more like the, the building where, we, yep. where um, our Ministry of Defense is, um, but they are still embedding, uh, and, and they are taking embeds as well in Afghanistan with the French troops. So in this regard, it's not, I mean, quite different from... Um, so the, the only difference would lie in, you know, the fact that you don't uh, cross that many, you know, um, high-ranking officers that easily in France on a daily basis if you cover defense. Um, and more generally, the 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 French um, defense and military sphere is much more hidden in our society, much less accessible than it is in the U.S. Um, it's probably because, first of all, our military is smaller, obviously, but also because our nation doesn't feel like it's at war, really, although we are in Afghanistan, but we're not a nation at war on paper. So it's different. And also, um, in society, the military is not as visible, whereas in the US, everybody knows somebody in the military, or a veteran, or, you know, Everybody has a sister, a brother. Everybody has a story on a wounded person, a uh, somebody who died in combat. It's part of this society. It's very vibrant. It's also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we were talking before we came in here, and you said that you think also in the French culture, the French society trusts the government more than Americans trust their government. They Probably. have more, they believe them more. Am I missing? I mean, there's less, I would say, of a, um, you know, what's striking in the, in the US society is this uh, whole um, um, group of people, very big group of people who distrust the government, the federal government so, you know, there's such a hate for it. It's very strong. 
and it's related to history, I guess. In France, it's less conflictual. I mean, of course, like on the social side, for example, it's super conflictual. It's very conflictual. But I would say it's not um, putting in question the fundamentals of our government, you know, its existence as it is, you know. I mean, it's so mm -hmm. it's a different tradition. Yes. Um, getting back to Peter's point, I just have a question about whether or not the, you find the military, if it puts out um, a tweet or something on Facebook that, that then uh, precludes you from asking questions. If they say, look, this is our statement, it's here, take it or leave it. Or the general already commented on that, check our Facebook. Because then that obviously would exclude any kind of uh, filter or cross-checking. Does that happen very often? Um, I don't know if, I don't have any real collection of that happening exactly in the terms you were um, putting like um, Twitter <coughs> or Facebook. But in terms of, yeah, putting a press release out and not wanting to comment any further, that happens all the time. I guess I wonder if, if, um, if uh, kind of in the digital era, their privacy, they're getting the message out first, means that they don't have to hold a press conference. They don't have to be accountable. Um, that's probably the case. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have any exact examples coming in mind right now. But yeah, it's a way to get rid of the, you know, the issue, um, or what happens very often is, um, you know, everybody calls whenever there's a, a breaking news on, okay, let's say um, um, civilians killed um, in an operation in, in Afghanistan, reports from Afghanistan coming from, um, you know, about it, and everybody calls the Pentagon, the ISAF in Afghanistan and so on, and there's like a, you know, blockade. Nobody says a word for hours, hours and hours, and then there's suddenly like those three you know, lines appearing, whether it's on a, uh, through a com uh, official communication, uh, press release or f Facebook, you know, and that's all they're gonna say. And they won't say anything else for, you know, I mean, until supposedly the uh, investigation is over, which is never over, and um, they hope that we just forget about it, you know, so. Yes, uh, this, this young woman, uh, I'll get you in oh, just a second. Okay. Serena Christian, Boston University. I'm currently writing my MA paper and I'm having difficulty because I'm writing on regional command north in Afghanistan and I'm looking at German NATO intervention and their efficiency. I'm specifically looking at the case of the September 4, 2009 airstrike and you know that there's been an investigation done by NATO. The problem that I'm having is that they don't make public their findings at this point. So my question is, to which sources do you turn when you have to write an accurate account of an incident when you do not have the information that they found? Because right now I'm just using news reports. I know. Which is so vague. I feel bad turning my <coughs> thesis in and being, well, this is what the public opinion says and this is what the journalists are writing. Unfortunately, um, my only advice would be go there, but it's kind of risky. <laughs> I can't. No, I mean, um, I've cut it off but they just give me very vague information. I'm sure, uh, but you know, uh, and um, I admire your courage and um, your perseverance because um, as you say, if, uh, unfortunately, I mean, I'm not saying that the media is you know, so great that we get everything and so on, but frankly, if uh, all the reports you have from the press are vague, there's a reason, it's because we don't have that information. And if they don't give it to the press, I doubt that they give it to a student, unfortunately. 
So I, I don't know what to tell you uh, apart from maybe try on the Afghan side because yeah. I, would, I would think that, you know, there, the problem is the truth might not be there as well, mm -hmm. but they would be probably more willing to talk about it than the very people who are accused of wrongdoings, in this case, the military. Um, so because, for example, every time there's a killings of civilians, um, Afghan, the Afghan government is the first to react, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, for obvious reasons. But um, so I would try to uh, contact the uh, Ministry of Defense of Afghanistan. Right, and because they are participating every time, they're supposed to participate in the investigation. Yeah, they have not. It's always a joint investigation. So maybe that's the way you should do. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Now, I heard on the radio today that uh, Northrop and the Airbus Consortium withdrew from the competition for the tankers, the refueling tankers. It would seem to me that that's a real issue that should be probed in, by investigative reporters because a year or so ago, whenever it was, um, the Airbus consortium had the contract. And now Boeing is the only sole source for this. Uh, how are you going to deal with that issue, if at all? Oh, I've been doing the, dealing with that issue for six years. Because before this assignment, I was covering the defense industry and the aeronautics. So believe me, I know that issue. And I've been following it forever. It's never going to end. <laughs> um, you're very right. It's very strange. Um, Boeing first won. Then there was a problem of you know, fraud. It got uh, put again on the market. Then Northrop Grumman won with Airbus. Then Boeing, you know, uh, asked for the GAO to uh, to investigate, and now uh, Boeing is the sole competitor. Um, although there's two things that changed. Uh, I mean, there's a few things that you have to take into account to understand this. Uh, first of all, apparently the uh, the RFP, the request for proposal, um, has um, quite changed since last year. And now it's focusing mainly on the price, and uh, which is something you know popular with the public opinion. Given the fact that we're in such an economic crisis, you want to you know spend less money, especially on defense. Um, and in this regard, Airbus is disadvantaged because its model is uh, newer. It's a newer version, and it has a longer range, and so on. So it's it's more expensive, but it's supposed to last longer and be more performant. I don't know about it, but that's what they say. Um, and also what changed is the government. I mean, uh, last year when Boeing, uh, when, no, when, when, when Airbus won, if I well remember, it was during the Bush administration. Was it, am I correct? Or? Yeah, I believe you are. Yes. Yeah. Now it's Obama administration, and frankly, Northrop Grumman and the ADS um, um, have developed a lot of ties with the Republicans. Whereas Boeing is more on the Democratic side, I swear, frankly. Just Look, coincidence, of course. <laughs> Washington State, Boeing, Boeing is in Chicago, Illinois. Washington State, they have their assembly lines. Um, whereas um, the assembly line of Airbus was supposed to be in Mobile, Alabama, and the senator is Republican. Huh. Bad bet. Gene? 
Yeah, there used to be, and I assume still is, a certain tension over the fact that France is a member of the political but not military structure of NATO. Uh, do you find that a problem in, in, uh, in your relationship with folks at the Pentagon? Um, I wouldn't say so. And it's, um, um, I think we've actually um, recently joined the military side, uh, side command of NATO. Um, yeah, I think it was last year or something like that. Um, we had left it during De Gaulle presidency. It had made a big, <coughs> it was a big deal. And uh, uh, President Sarkozy decided that it was time to uh, go back to that, you know, and then take part in the crucial decisions because we're, you know, a, a big uh, actor at NATO. So I think actually, uh, I mean, the, the, the uh, opposition back in France, the left uh, uh, party, was very much against it um, because they were saying that it's, um, it was a way to, uh, to get, um, to, uh, to be given orders by the, the United States, basically. Uh, but um, we actually did. So mm -hmm. now, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've joined that uh, um, uh, integrated military mm -hmm. command. Yeah, it's, it's really recent. Final question, yeah. yeah. We haven't talked much about personal risk. Um, as a war correspondent, you put yourself at risk. And what I'm wondering is, uh, maybe worse than that, is the risk of others who maybe want to help you uh, pursue a story or provide protection or whatever. And that must create a, a real conflict. True. Um, frankly, um, I've, 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 um, I've not been in a lot of uh, extremely dangerous situations since I've been covering the Pentagon. My main travels I do with uh, the Secretary of Defense. And of course, there's always like a risk factor. But frankly, we're in a bubble when we travel with him. So whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq, I mean, yeah, I think it's the safest place to be is uh, next yeah. to the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> so but it's true that as I was embedding in Afghanistan, that was different. And uh, for a month, uh, I was with the troops. And whatever problem they could face, that would become my problem. But um, I never actually uh, left, went by myself um, outside of Kabul, for example, uh, do my own reporting. Um, this is not my task. We have people doing that in our Kabul office, but less and less, frankly. It's become too dangerous, unfortunately, because it makes us even more dependent on the military to go throughout the country. But um, it has become very dangerous. The latest example of that is uh, those um, French journalists uh, who were kidnapped right. while they were trying to get a story, but they were with um, their driver and a fixer and the fixer happened to, you know, sell them to whatever um, problem. Yeah, so it's extremely dangerous, it's true. As for me, uh, before to go on an embed, I really thought about it twice, but I thought it was something uh, that was worth taking the risk, although, you know, I was surrounded by the military, so I, mean, I felt vaguely safe, although because of the IEDs it was kind of uh, dodgy. But um, I thought it was absolutely mandatory for me, as a Pentagon correspondent, to go see for myself. Because there was a box in the, in the it, there was something in the full picture that I was missing by not sharing the soldiers' daily lives. And frankly, it, it, it brought a whole new perspective. So I'm glad I took the risk. If I'm willing to do that, 
a lot again, I'm not sure. Because frankly, those IEDs, they scare the hell out of you. <laughs> Daphne, thank you. Mm -hmm. This has been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you.